How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, we are thrilled, delighted, happy, excited, etc. to have again Dr. Robert J. Morgan. What's the J stand for, by the way? John. John. Robert yes, John. it was my father's name. I love it. He was John Isaac. Perfect. <laughs> you, so, come, you come from a long line. Huh? So he was known as John I. Morgan. So I'm Robert John Morgan. And he made it a point to let me know I should always leave that J in there. Oh. So I do that very fondly. Well, Today, I, by the way, would have been his 109th birthday. Whoa, wow. How long ago did he pass? In the 1980s, 80s. maybe 83 or so. But you, I don't think you ever forget your parents' birthdays. You no, know, it rolls around quietly and through the years. But 109, Goodness. you know, it's it's hard to imagine that. That's amazing. And my middle name was Jay and... My dad was kind of particular about Joseph R. Easley. He always put the R in there, and it was like, put your middle initial in there. And for some reason, it stuck. I don't know why. But anyway, for those of you who have not yet heard our podcast with Dr. Robert J. Morgan or heard him teach on the Stonebridge Bible Church Ministry or the Donaldson Fellowship, you need to know about him. And in the show notes, we'll have all the links to that. But just to give you a little insight on who we're talking with today, Robert J. Morgan is the teaching pastor at the Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville, although his role has changed there a bit. He's been there for over 40 years, a best-selling author, almost 40 books in print, about 5 million copies in circulation in uh, many different languages. And I'll stop at that point because otherwise we'd spend all our time just talking about your CV, Robert. But thanks again for doing the podcast and coming by. Well, you know, I love you, Dr. Easley, and and love being with you. Thank you. It's fun, yeah. Well, I see you brought one of your current books. We'll get to that. But So we've got these 10 questions, and uh, we're just having fun with people to kind of recalibrate, you know, why certain things are important to us. And, you know, the name of this thing is in context. So when you think about your life and ministry from, you know, when you came to Christ and chose to be a pastor, you told us a little bit about that before, but how do you carry out being a Christian in the context of where you are now? Obviously you're in ministry, but just your thoughts on that a little bit. Yeah. Well, my context has changed a lot. For 43 years, I was a senior pastor or Let's see, I started in 1977. So for 40 years, I would say I was the senior pastor of one of two churches. And that was my, you know, I loved doing that. I loved almost everything about being a pastor, except maybe counseling. That wasn't, you know, one of my strengths, but I would do that when I needed to. And then my wife became disabled. And I juggled all of that while beginning to do more itinerant speaking and writing for magazines and books. So then I just had the context of of a caregiving ministry, a broader ministry along with the church ministry, and 
So those three things merge together for a point of pretty, pretty great intensity. And then I shifted out of being the senior pastor. And then my wife passed away last year. So I'm back now to, to a manageable. I feel like that I'm at a place where I can continue to minister at age 68 with a single-minded focus mm. that I've not been able to do for a long time. I miss Katrina very much, but she had become so disabled that we both understood that her life couldn't go on at that level of deteriorating quality forever. But our first priority was to give caregiving to one another. You know, I think that she was my caregiver as much as I was hers. But it's just, you know, the pressure mounted to a point with pastoring, writing and speaking, and caregiving all three merging together for a period of time. And then it was writing and caregiving, and now it's more writing and speaking. So my context has shifted. I'm busier than ever before, but I don't feel some of the pressures I've felt in the past, and I like that. Well, you're a disciplined guy, too, and you wouldn't be you wouldn't be who you are or happy if you weren't busy and you know have goals and deadlines, I presume. I don't believe in, in retiring you shift vocations sometimes, and I did. I shifted vocationally. But our purpose that the Lord placed us here for never expires. The work that he's given us to do is never over until he takes us to heaven. I never wake up and you know, ever ask myself, what am I going to do today? You know, <laughs> what in the world am I going to do to fill up my day? I always I wake up and I say, dear Lord, how can I get everything done that you've called me to do? <laughs> but it's one thing to work steadily for the Lord and another to be under too much pressure. Right. And so for a long time, I was under a lot of pressure, and the Lord gave me strength for it. Right now, the work is as busy, but I don't feel quite as much pressure as I did. That's yeah. good. That's good. Well, and I, I think, you know, not to sound, I know we're so cautious today about you know, sexism, but I think men were wired to do, to produce, to, you know, to, to have some result going on. And I think when we don't, it typically doesn't go well. <laughs> we don't do well without a structure. Well, I don't know how I would cope with a non-Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. I am an optimist and a hard worker because of the truth of Scripture and if I didn't have that truth compelling me, then I'm really not sure what it would be like for me to be 68 years old. I think I would be lost, really, to be honest. Well, and you and I know people that, believers and unbelievers, that when they retire, they park themselves in front of a television, or maybe they play golf three times a week, or, you know, and we're not judging or saying that's a terrible thing, but it does seem to be almost hollow. After all those years, let us move on. These questions: What's been the greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey? Probably the area of motivation. I think that our motivations are the most difficult part of ourselves to discern. We can deceive ourselves so easily, but we can't perpetually deceive ourselves about everything. But in the whole area of motivation, I think the self-deception that can occur there is so extraordinarily deep. And I have to back up and say, I am working hard. And I have been 
to a certain extent driven, but was it really for Christ Mm. or was it for uh, significance or for recognition or for respect or to make others notice me mm-hmm. or to build a particular kingdom for myself or to reach certain levels of expectation or success that I'd... I think that is a very difficult thing for us to discern. And I think there have been times when I have done things that appeared to be for the Lord, but maybe my bigger motivation was to be noticed or to gain respect. It was for self. I think the whole area of motivation to me is the biggest challenge, to make sure that I'm just always doing what I'm doing for the Lord. Now, if we take that word to motive, Cindy and I have had this uh, collegial ongoing debate about there's no such thing as a pure motive. She maintains there is, and I maintain there isn't. (laughs) And we go back, you know, it's, it's fun, but it's the idea that how can I, as you articulated, how can I know for sure, even doing this quote for the Lord, there's some ego in the motivation that we're going to study, we're going to write, we're going to wordsmith, we're going to think how to present it, how to illustrate it, how to teach people, for example. That's well, attention, I, right? I agree with you that until we get to heaven, it's going to be <laughs> impossible to, or virtually impossible, to do things with absolutely pure motives that desire the glory of Jesus Christ. Some people... I've met or I've read about, I think came pretty close to it, Yeah, you know, but I don't feel like I have. I'm not. But we've got to keep growing in that area. We've got to keep working at it. And the more we focus our minds on things above and stay in the scripture and walk with the Lord and pray and keep our eyes on him, I think the likelier we are to grow into that. It's just like everything else in the Christian life. It's a maturing process. I often preach to myself and tell others it's a posture for living. It doesn't guarantee success or blessing, but it's a posture to walk faithfully, to be in the Word, to spend time in prayer. You know, that seems to me, I say it this way, God's not called us to be successful. He's called us to be faithful. But it's especially hard now in the social media age, you know, because I post things on social media as a ministry, things that you know, quotes from my sermons or things that I've said or people that I've met or occasions when I've ministered. And that's a dilemma because you want to expand your reach everywhere. But every individual post is narcissistic by nature. <laughs> so how do even you... Even if it's bad, even if even it's a, oops, I shouldn't have done this right. Well, I <laughs> mean, I, attention. Yeah. I, I remember hearing Billy Graham once say they at a press conference, they asked him, why it was that his name was plastered on all of the billboards and everything. And everything was Billy Graham. His name was trademarked and all over town. And he said, if there was any other way to do it, I would. He said, uh, mm. he just doesn't know any way to generate the crowds that he would need at the crusade without that kind of branding. Right. And it is a sort it's of a reality. dilemma, I think, yeah. for all of us, yeah. I know it's a little bit of a cliche question, but what's a key verse for you or perhaps a favorite book of the scripture? I don't know that I have a life verse, but it would come close to being Psalm 119, 139 in the Living Bible. When I was in college, I found that verse while reading the Living Bible, which came out, you know, while I was in college. J.B. Phillips. Yeah. 
Well, it's the one by Ken Taylor. Oh, the excuse, whole, me, excuse me, you're right. Yes, Ken and Taylor. the old yes. green. Do you remember yes. the old green covers? Yes. And Psalm 139, verse 16 says, You saw me before I was born mm. and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. And that had a profound impact on me. I remember highlighting it and underlining it and memorizing it because that told me, and I was 19 or 20 at the time, that told me that God had a daily plan for the rest of my life. And that's a pretty good orientation to come to when you're 19 or 20. Yeah. It, it really had a strong impact upon the way that I approached my life and my career and everything else, even to this day. I, I often wrestle with that on a day-to-day basis is, you know, what am I doing for the Lord and what am I doing that's and it can be wholesome. It can be, you know, some hobby or some project or reading a, a book, you know, that I'm reading now. But I go, is this really to the glory of the Lord? You know, it's, it's. I don't have the answer for that one either. Yeah, I have a technique that works for me, and I developed it about 10 years ago. But every morning when I have my devotions, I have my ministry divided up into 10 different areas. And I also have a, a page of to-do items that I do in pencil so I can erase them. And and so when I have my devotions every morning, as I get to the end of my prayer time and Bible study time, I say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Mm. You know, like Saul of Tarsus who said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then while I'm in that attitude of prayer, I look at all of my responsibilities, deadlines or sermons that are coming up, I'll look at that to-do list, and I'll make a little card of things to do for that day. And that's my agenda for the day. Mm. I don't always get through it. In fact, I seldom do. But I try as best I can to figure out what does the Lord want me to do today. And I've operated that way for a number of years. And and it, it really works for me. I keep a 305 card on my desk when I'm doing my devotions. And I write down my distractions. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, you have to order that Amazon Prime. Otherwise, I'll do it, and yeah. then I'll be lost, you know? Yeah, I know. Because if I turn the computer on, I'm toast. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's, let's go on here. Um, obviously, beyond Scripture, one, two, three books that have been particularly influential? Yeah, I was just thinking about that because my granddaughter is dating a young fellow who is aiming at ministry who graduated from high school. So I decided I would order him the copies of the books that have been most meaningful huh. for, to me. And so there are four of them besides the Bible, maybe five. But the two books on the attributes of God, Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy and J.I. Packer's Knowing God, mm. those were two very impacting books. Mm-hmm. I also think that Eusebius's History of the Early Church, especially the edition, the translation by Paul Meyer, is so good because it's the earliest history that we really have extant of what happened to the apostles and after the days of the apostles, and it's not infallible. But it just gives you a really sense of the sense of the historical heritage that was established, Mm -hmm. which we have. And I just find it a fascinating book. Also, there's a book by T.D. Bernard called The Progress of Doctrine in the New Testament. Huh. And it's not the easiest book to read. It's a series of lectures that Bernard gave a hundred years ago. But they are brilliant, and they show 
how the New Testament, not just in its contents, but in its arrangement, is woven together so that the plan of the ordering of the New Testament book shows divine oversight and represents a progress. He would say, for example, that when you study from Matthew to John, the teachings of Jesus are embryonic. Everything that Jesus said was embryonic. But there is progress, so that if you start with the uh, Sermon on the Mount and you work your way through to John 13, 14, 15, and 16, the Upper Room Discourse is much deeper theologically than the Sermon on the Mount. But even at that point, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, but I cannot say it now, but I will tell you later. And then we come to the book of Acts, and it says this is the beginning. The earlier gospel was the beginning of all that Jesus begun to teach. So Bernard would say that when you read the epistles, it is Jesus speaking just as surely as it was in the Gospels, taking the thoughts that he gave embryonically in the Gospels, which he could not fill out because the events that were pivotal to them had not yet occurred, and giving the doctrinal explanation for the seminal teachings and the historical events that he gave. And so he really, in a remarkable way, puts the New Testament together. And you can take his principles and apply it to the entirety of Scripture. So I just find his book a fascinating book. Well, we'll put information on that in the show notes so you can find it and if you want to purchase it for your own benefit. And you said another one? You said four or five? Well, it's hard to um, uh, I understand <laughs> to leave uh, Pilgrim's Progress okay, off the list. interesting. Yeah. As a preacher, there is nothing that I cannot illustrate somewhere from a story from Pilgrim's Progress. That is such a comprehensive, you know, Spurgeon read it a hundred times. Goodness. And it's such a comprehensive book about the Christian life that if you're preaching on any subject somewhere, and I don't illustrate every sermon with it, in fact, very rarely do I, but sometimes when you need just the right illustration, you can find it somewhere in Pilgrim's Progress. And the thing is, It's in so many editions. You can draw your own map of the Christian life and share it with children. And it's a great teaching tool for youngsters, too, about the Christian life. So I like Bunyan. When you look back on your life, and again, it's hard to distill it, but one of the biggest lessons that you've learned at this point in your life? It's very hard to answer that. I think the lessons have been so they unfold. It's sort of like I was talking about with Jesus speaking embryonically and with the epistles, I had such a good set of mentors when I was 19, 20, and 21 years old that everything that I learned later I now realize was taught to me embryonically by people who were, who were mentors of mine. The thing that I share with millennials is that everything depends on our relationship with Christ, which involves the heart of full devotion, the habits of daily fellowship through a quiet time, the holiness that ensues from that, and the happiness or joy that flows out of that. Mm. And if you have that quartet of realities, a right heart, the right habits, the right holiness, and the right happiness, which produces, by the way, the hard work, 
then you've got the core of discipleship. And I think all of that came to me gradually, but I realize now looking back that I was taught early those things, but as I've grown, it's come together. And it just is so sensible that to be a disciple of the Lord is the simplest, most wonderful thing in the world. And the older I get, the simpler it seems, and the more wonderful it appears. You mentioned happiness and joy, and this is an area that I've wrestled with. And you know, if, the, if you were asking me these questions, you know, it's finding joy. Happiness to me is a fleeting. You know, that was a yeah. great meal. It was, I was happy to have you know friends over, and I cooked it or smoked some meats on the grill. It was I was happy, but joy is different. And you mentioned happiness. How do you help a help me or help someone who's not happy, doesn't find joy. They're doing those things. They're disciplined. They're following Christ. They're hopefully open to the scripture, but it's just, it's more discipline and duty. I've worked on it very hard. I'm melancholic by nature. When I was in college, I had bouts of depression. When I was a young minister, I had tremendous periods of discouragement, and I battled through all of that. I think the thing that helped me the most was when I finally did a Bible study of the word joy and rejoicing and some related words to that in the Bible. There's the word merry, M-E-R-R-Y. There's the word cheer. But primarily, you know, the core ideas of joy and rejoicing in the Bible, it's the one Bible study I never completed because it was too overwhelming. I could not believe the number of times those words occur in the Bible. It's in every book. It's from Genesis to Revelation. It occurs over and over and over and over again. And one verse leads to a cross-reference that leads to another one. And I began going in all kinds of directions with it. It was like a spider web trying to track down and to categorize and to systematize all the verses about joy. And I just never did finally come up with any kind of systemization of those verses, but I came away with an overwhelming sense of the preponderance of that in the Bible. And I came away from that Bible study, which took me a year to just, you know, at a leisurely pace to keep going back to it. But I came away thinking, the Lord really does want me to have a joyful attitude. I mean, this is important (laughs) to him. I don't know of any one subject that occurs so frequently in so many ways in the Bible. And I began to realize that we can be cheerful if we want to. And when my wife and I were, you know, struggling with her disability, we just made up our minds we'd be cheerful every day. And I realized you can do that. And I wake up now in the morning, and most mornings I get out of bed, and I say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I just determined to go into the day cheerfully. I wrote about this in a book called Mastering Life Before It's Too Late. It's like Viktor Frankl, you know, in his, yeah, the search for man's search for meaning. He says they can take everything away from you except your ability to choose your own attitudes. And happiness is an emotion, but joy is an attitude. Our attitudes— And and we're, we're even told to choose joy. Yeah, yeah. Our attitudes we can choose, and then our emotions come out of our attitudes, So uh, I tell people our attitudes come and grow, our emotions come and go. But if your attitudes... That'll preach, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) If your attitudes are biblical, which I really think is the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think that is the ninefold description of the attitude of the Lord Jesus. So I don't know. I think I have grown in this. Maybe that's the answer to the earlier question because I've gone through a lot of anxiety and depression and discouragement in my life. But And I don't want to say I'm beyond those things. But I do think that the preponderance of the word joy in the Bible has really helped me shift into a much more positive mindset. When you were sharing that, it it triggered a time in my life, and it was in uh, college and seminary when I was just, I was working basically full-time, paying my way through college and seminary, had no money. And I uh, was a dental surgeon friend of mine in Nacogdoches, Texas, named Rick Hurst. And I called Rick before email and social media. I called Rick and I said, I, I'm having trouble, Doc. I need some help with contentment and money. And I'll never forget two things he told me. One was he said, you, the amount of money isn't the solution to your problem. It's how you use the money you have. And then secondly, he said, you have to learn contentment. And I did the exact same thing you said with joy. I started studying the word contentment for months and all the tangent words, and yeah. you know, it became reductionistic to a point. It means enough, and that was such an eye-opening lesson for me to say, Michael, you have to say this is enough. Whether it's money, sex, power, accumulation, whatever it is, this is enough. And I think that's where discontentment comes in. Is when I compare myself. You know, the other thing I often say is comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. The moment I compare my house, car, life, whatever, to someone else's, now I'm discontent. And uh, contentment, and that was a mindset. And whenever I get discontent, I go, wait a minute, Michael, you have enough. And that's not just material, but it's enough, whatever. But back to your point, the reason I digressed is I think that's a great discipline for all of us, whether we're lonely or sad or tired or discouraged, you know, study that theme, that word, yeah. and it will expand your yeah. mind. Or if you, you know, if you have a problem with anger management, study the subject of anger in the Bible. Yep. Yep. Whatever it is, if you go into the Bible and you track down every verse and you put them down and you study them and you find some to memorize and maybe read some Christian books on those subjects, yep. but only after It'll you've done your it. Bible study, yeah. it's powerful. It is very powerful. What's one thing you have longed for every believer to know, to do, to be different in regards to? The thing that I try to teach when I'm mentoring a young person more than anything else is what we've already talked about, our daily devotions. When I was 19, Stephen Olford, the great British preacher, came to our school, and I'd never heard anyone preach like he did, you know. And I went up to him, and I said, Dr. Olford, I said, do you have any advice for a young person like me? And He stuck his finger in my nose and sounded just like when he was preaching. He said, young man, he said, never, never, never miss your quiet time. And (laughs) then he turned around and walked away. That's all he said. But, and I hardly knew what a quiet time was. Right. But, you know, I, I learned and I was learning. And then I had a very wise lady who showed me how to keep a notebook along with my quiet time. And I've never had a sabbatical in 43 years. I've gone through a lot of difficulty, just like everybody does. I've probably not gone through nearly as much as some people do, but I've never burned out. And I think the reason 
is that daily morning replenishing in my devotions. And when I see people harried and frustrated and and not walking with the Lord or not being victorious in their Christian life or, or sort of lost or overwhelmed, that's what I want them to know, that if you'll just spend 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes at the, habitually, yep. it could be in the morning, it could be in the evening, it could be at lunch, I don't care when it is, but it really is a game changer in a person's life because that is, Jesus said, go into your inner room and shut the door mm-hmm. and meet with your father in secret. It's good, excellent. Greatest disappointment in your ministry vocation? Yeah, I was thinking about that, and I cannot think of one. I just, that word isn't really in my vocabulary. Now, I think earlier in my life, it would have been. For example, when I started pastoring here in Nashville, I had a church of about 100 that I came to, and I thought within four or five years, we should be having three or 4,000. You know, I'd been a part of a big church, and I was full of enthusiasm and zeal. And we did grow, you know, during my tenure there, over 40 years, we grew from 100 to 1,000, but we never really grew to be a mega church or anything. It was just, and there was a period when I was tremendously disappointed with that. So disappointed that, you know, that I went to, others for counseling to try to say, you know, what has gone wrong here? But as time went by, the Lord opened up doors to writing and to speaking, and and now more recently social media, and in so many other ways, which if I'd had a church of four or 5,000, I don't think I'd have been able to do. And now, you know, this isn't to sound, you know, to go back to our earlier discussion about ego— But, I mean, we have 4.5 million books out there and a lot of other things as well. And I look back on it now, and I see, you know, God had a plan all along. Right. And it's hard for me to look back and see any lasting disappointments. I see how in the providence of God, they've turned out sort of like Paul said in Philippians 1, rather for the furtherance of the gospel. And I've also come to realize, you know, even with books, a book may flop. You know, it very likely will, actually. But one copy of my least-selling book may do more good in God's hands than all of the copies of my best-selling book. Hmm. You know, maybe there's some child that is affected by someone who reads my book, and that child who was affected because of that will end up being the next Billy Graham or something. I don't know. This is all in the Lord's hands. So... There's a number of verses I go to, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that our labor and the Lord is not in vain. Isaiah 55, that his word doesn't return void. Galatians chapter 6, that we will reap a harvest if we don't faint. And I've come to realize that there really, when you're in God's will, there may be momentary disappointments, but as time goes by, you look back on them, and they actually have been blessings in disguise, and I don't look back now with a sense of, I'm, sometimes I'm disappointed that I didn't serve the Lord better or that I wasn't a better person. Right. But in terms of vocational or career or major disappointments, it's hard for me to think in those terms. Then the easier question to answer, the greatest encouragement in the ministry uh, over the years. Well, the two people that have encouraged me the most have been the Lord and the aforementioned quiet time and Bible verses we've had, and Katrina, my wife, 
who was a great encourager. When I was in college, I asked Edwin Young, who today is at Second Baptist in Houston, just a wonderful man. He's 83 or 84, I think, and still going strong. strong. Yeah, he's a very strong fellow, but he was just a young beginning pastor when he was in Columbia, South Carolina, and I was there sitting in his church. And I asked him, I said, tell me what you do and what a pastor does. And somewhere along the way, I said, and what does your wife do as a pastor's wife? And he says, she does the one thing that every pastor's wife needs to do. She takes care of the pastor. (laughs) And um, so I told that to Katrina, and Katrina never forgot it. And when we were uh, beginning our pastorate, you know, the people said, now the former pastor headed up the women's auxiliary and all right. these other things. Right. And Katrina said, well, I'm sure there's ministries that I'll want to do, but my main job is to take care of the pastor. And uh, she really did. She was a wonderful encouragement to me. So those people were encouragers in terms of things that encourage me. I think it's just what I said before, that providentially and God's will, even our mistakes are redeemed. Hmm. Redemption covers our disappointments. It covers our sins and, and mistakes, and it covers, it covers events that happen. You know, it's like the man who went out to make the stew and he took some, got some poison berries or something. And he poisoned all of the preachers. He didn't do that maliciously. It was a mistake. But thank goodness he did it because Elisha came along. and Or was it Elisha? I think it's Elisha. And, and solved the problem and gave us all a great story, you know, that we've been <laughs> preaching about for, for 2,700 years. So even mistakes can be flipped around and used for good in the providence of God. And that awareness, I think, has been a tremendous encouragement. You've already spoken several times about your 19-year-old self, so this question may not need too much information, but what would you, if you wrote a letter today to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell him? My 18-year-old self was a mess. He was very confused, (laughs) very depressed, very unsure. Mm. My 19-year-old self came to really know the Lord Mm. in a remarkable way. The things that we've already talked about, learning that disappointments and failed ambitions Hmm. can all be a part of God in accomplishing a greater plan. So don't stress so much about them. You know, I would have liked to have learned that earlier. And I think vocationally, I would have liked to have been coached to be a more assertive leader. Hmm. As a pastor, I think I I focused a lot on exposition, and I wouldn't go back and change that. In fact, I would have focused on being a better exposition, a better expositor than I was. But I think that I delegated a lot of the other church responsibilities to people, but I didn't hold them accountable as quickly and as rigidly as I should have. And I I could have been a more assertive leader in terms of my pastoral role Mm -hmm. than I was. And then the other thing, you know, my wife and I battled her disability for about 30 years altogether. And it took me a long time and her both. And we never did fully succeed at it to learn to cope with it as we should have. And I could have 
there were things that were very, very hard that I only learned to do when I absolutely had to. Going back, I should have embraced those with greater humility earlier on. And if someone would have coached me when I was 18 about some of the hardships of life and leaning into them and being humble through them, that would have been helpful. But we don't have all the coaching we need at age 18, and we don't have the capacity to, to absorb it, it all yeah. at that time. So, so maturing a lot of times is something that just has to happen as we age and are prepared for it. But it does seem to me that it took me a little too long to mature in some of these areas. Now, I wonder, and you used the phrase embryonic, talking about Christ teaching, and I think back on my own life and some of the lessons I learned from my father, from non-believers, from Christians, and how as we mature, I mean, none of us could have the maturity of a 60-year-old in our teens, you know, because it takes life's experience. It takes growing physically and mentally in our capacities, and I think you have to get, you know, shocked enough with the you know, burned enough rather with, you know, with the stove before you realize, okay. So I wonder some of it, we can be hard on ourselves, but there's also the kindness of God that I can go back and quote so many things my father told me. Yeah. And I find myself now, you mentioned your dad's birthday today. I find myself thinking more about my father in my sixties than ever before wondering, I wonder what he would have said to me today, you know, with this situation, yeah. because while we didn't agree on many things, he was a wise, good man. Yeah, you know, I wonder how did he raise three kids in the Depression? How did he never go into debt? How did he make it work when he had a low-paying job and he was still faithful? But all I have to say, sometimes we can only, you know, grasp and comprehend so much. Finally, not finally, finally, but finally on the questions, what would you like your epitaph to say? Yeah, well, that's a very easy one. I've known that for many years, although my epitaph is already, you know, when my wife passed away, then we already had our burial plots, and they've already put down the doggone marker with my name on it, <laughs> and all it says is Robert John Morgan, May 29th, 1952, dash. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering what the rest of it is going to say, you know, but there's not going to be any epitaph on there, but if there were, back when I was... You know, I talked about how six, seven years into my ministry, I was so disappointed that my church had hit a plateau and we hadn't, you know, we weren't running at six or 10 or 20,000. We were, you know, 600 or 500 or 400. And there was a counselor that worked with Campus Crusade called Lauren Lillistrand. And a friend of mine recommended that my wife and I go out to Arrowhead Springs, which is where Crusade mm -hmm. was at that time, crew, and talk to him. So we went out for the weekend. And he sent me some questions in advance, and one of them was that very question. And I thought about it and thought about it. And, you know, Michael, I love the great hymns. And one of my favorites is by Fanny Crosby, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. And one of the stanzas says, let me see if I can quote it, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, the last line says, And when through realms of daylight my path will be. This my song through endless ages, but here's the line, Jesus led me all the way. Jesus led me all the way. And that's what I, I went and I told Lauren Lillistrand, that would be my epitaph, Jesus led me all the way. And 
that exercise really did help me a lot. I mean, it brought my thinking into context that, you know, I don't want to be known for having, you know, had a church of 6,000 or 10,000 or 20,000, just that Jesus led me all the way. So this my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. All the way. Tim Kimball, I don't know if you know him, he's a dear friend, and he has a desk, and on the far left side, he has a picture of the hospital where he was born, and on the far right, it's their... Um, Gravesite? Gravesite, <laughs> yeah, and he goes, when I sit at my desk, I keep that in mind. Uh-huh. I came here, and I'm going there. What am I doing at this desk today? Yes, and it's yeah. a dash, isn't it, it between is the, the dash, two? It is the dash, the poem. Yes. Well, you brought a book into the studio with you, so I'm making the conclusion you wanted to chat about that, well, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. Well, don't make that conclusion necessarily. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't remember if I was supposed to bring it or not, but as well, long, as, about as, long as you, you brought it up, no, yes. It's, yeah, it's a prop. Come on. Uh, <laughs> it's good. Uh, it's a good thing. Yeah. This is a, I've just been reading a book about the making of the Constitution that just came out. And the writer said, 200 years ago, people thought that the gathering of the Constitution and its coming together the way it did was a matter of divine providence, and now we realize it is purely a secular affair. Well, I read that, and I just shook my head. This is what every modern historian is saying. Revisionist, yep. Yes, this is what the textbooks are saying. This is what the biographers of our former presidents are saying. They are minimizing the role of the Bible and Christianity and American history, and every other group is lobbying for their contributions to be added to the history of America, whereas they're trying to erase every biblical or Christian fragment from our past. And I'm pushing back. I'm frustrated about it because America, as we know it, would not be here without the Bible. The Founding Fathers quoted more from the Bible than from any yeah. other single source, including John Locke and the Enlightenment thinkers. It's because of the Puritan migration that this nation developed on a Judeo-Christian basis. And all the way through our history, the Bible has had a seminal effect. So I've taken 100 moments in American history when the Bible has made a big difference and put it into this book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. And we really haven't announced this Dr. Easley, but Fox Nation, the streaming service of Fox News, yes. is turning this into a television oh, fantastic. series. And we've already, I can't go to New York, so they came to Nashville. We've already taped some of these. They'll begin in August. But we just need to, especially right now when our nation is in such ferment and there is this Marxism that is eroding the core of the political philosophy of our people. We need to know mm-hmm. that the protesters and the Antifa and the, all of the others would not even be able to make their case if they didn't have the kind of freedom right. that the biblical basis of America allows them to have. And we are the original protesters, and yeah. this is originally our message. So I just like to get that out in this book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. It was a fun project that I think every parent ought to share with their child and every citizen ought to share mm-hmm. with their congressman. Well, we'll also have that on the show notes, but that wonderful search engine on your computer can find it quicker than that. Robert J. Morgan, always a delight to chat with you and appreciate your ministry and your tenacity to keep on keeping on. 
You're welcome, sir. Thank you, Michael. You bet. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.